If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is page 1161 in the Bibles in the pews. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reading from verse 11. And Paul writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you, not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Lord, as we look at your word together, speak to us by your Spirit that we might understand it and move us by your Spirit, that we might obey it. To your glory, Lord. Amen. I wonder if you remember what happened on the 4th of August, 2009, and what was in the news. That's 18 months ago. It's probably a bit hard to remember that far back, but on that day... Two American journalists, Laura Ling and Yuna Lee, were released from North Korea. Several months earlier, they had been making a documentary about North Korea up in northeast China, and they thought it would be fun to sneak across the river, which is not very wide at that point, and go into North Korea and take some film there. Well, they were caught by North Korean soldiers, they were arrested. They were sentenced to 12 years hard labor, and it took a personal visit 
by former US President Bill Clinton for them to be released. And on that day, the 4th of August, they got out. And it was on the news, and there were these pictures of them crossing the tarmac to the plane to eventually leave North Korea. Just four days later, I received this letter from somebody who I will call Jane Kim. She's also an American, also like these reporters, an Asian American, and actually quite similar to them, probably just four or five years difference in age, living in China. And this is what she writes, her letter dated August the 8th. She says, August the 3rd, that's the day before these two girls were released, I get the best news that I've been waiting for. For a long time, our paperwork was finally completed and we have finally got our residence permits to live in North Korea. Praise God, only he knows the kind of emotions that ran through me that day. August the 4th, the next day, the American journalists Laura Ling and Yuna Lee once again make headlines as they are finally released and allowed to return to the States after being caught for illegally entering the country and being sentenced to 12 years of hard labor. My dad calls me and comments, you crazy girl. Those reporters have been trying to get out and you're trying to get in to North Korea. How similar yet so different we are. For two Asian American women reporters, the past 140 days were, in their words, the most difficult and heart-wrenching times of their lives, and probably nothing consumed them more than the desire to get as far from North Korea as possible. On the other hand, writes Jane, as a Korean-American woman going back and forth into North Korea, the past two years of my life, though difficult, have been the most exhilarating and on the edge, and I can't help but be excited to think that I soon will be residing inside North Korea. Now, what is so remarkable about that letter? I would suggest two things. One, that a gifted, educated person from America is over the moon at the fact that they have been given permission to reside in North Korea. Even her own father says, are you nuts? There's parental encouragement for you. Why would anybody want to live in North Korea? But then I think the second thing that is so remarkable is that it is possible to get visas to go and live, not just visit, but live in North Korea. So how could anybody get to live in North Korea? Well, let's start with the first question. Why would anybody want to live in North Korea? And I have to tell you that Jane was not alone. Her residence visa was one of three. Of the other two, one was a doctor with a wife and three children, aged is five, seven, and one. And the first thing that he did when he got his residence permit to go and live in North Korea was to add his wife and his children because he wanted them to go and live in North Korea too. Why would you take your family to go and live in North Korea? I know people from Britain who still emigrate to Australia and America and Canada, but North Korea doesn't seem to be the top destination for emigration. 
I'm not sure that it has ever been. And, and people are a little bit frightened about North Korea. I was able to go into North Korea in the middle of 2009, actually in, in the middle of this period when the two American journalists had been arrested and were imprisoned because they were there for 140 days. I was supposed to be going as part of a team of English teachers. In fact, I thought I was just tagging along with the team to get an experience of North Korea, but they said, could you become part of the team? And then as the time got closer, North Korea was lobbing missiles into the sea in the direction of Japan, and it seemed that with every missile they lobbed into the sea, somebody dropped out of the team. So by the time we got there, it was me and one Korean-American girl, and I was the leader of the team. <laughs> Dr. Ian Prescott, who studied at Cambridge University, not mentioning that his doctorate is in missiology. <laughs> um, but we had a fantastic time uh, with some lovely people in a country that many people assume you can't get into. But why would anybody want to live in North Korea? I'll let ex Jane explain again how she looks at it. And this is another excerpt from that same letter. She says, what is your take on North Korea and its people? I believe the three of us, she's thinking of herself and the two journalists, could share many stories that would give insight into this isolated country and lay out evidence to sway you to either love or hate the North Korean people. But I believe that by doing that, we would miss the point. For it is not through the lens of media, personal testimonies, or human logic that we as Christians are supposed to assess North Korea, but through the lens of Christ. We are called to have God's eye perspective. The point is that without Christ, all are dead, and therefore all are in need of a Savior. And for some profound, mysterious reason, God has chosen to take us out of the pit already, and not others yet, though he knows who they are. So in nothing other than love, we must look at North Korea and be the vessels through which God brings them out from where we used to be, bound in the pit, to where we are now, free through Christ. Why would anybody want to live in North Korea? This is what Paul writes in our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, if we are out of our mind, and Jane's dad thought that maybe she was out of her mind, it is for the sake of God, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Christ's love compels us. Some translations use the, use the word constrains us. Christ's love won't let us do anything else. But it, it, it's not that Christ's love compels us in the sense of, of slapping handcuffs on us and making us do the right thing. It's not like a, a community service order that sometimes instead of imprisonment, people are given 
120 hours of community service that they must do to make amends for the bad things that they have done that mean they merit punishment and imprisonment. Rather, it's that Christ's love inside us makes us want to go and do things that seem ridiculous in the eyes of the world because Christ has filled us with his love. And we go out and act, not because we have to make amends for the bad things that we have done. They have been set aside. They have been dealt with in the death of Christ, and we don't have to worry about them anymore. But because of the love of Christ, we are compelled to act in love for other people. And this Jane, Christ's love inside her, was compelling her to see the North Korean people in a different light and to work over several years to find a way in which she could get into North Korea and live in North Korea and share that love of Christ that was in her heart with the North Korean people. And Christ's love was making her want to do that. Christ's love compels Christ's love compels us and Christ's spirit propels us. At the beginning of Acts, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the sense here is a bit different than the sense at the end of Matthew when he gives them the great commission and he tells them what to do. This is not so much a telling and an instruction of what you must do, but a prediction, a prophecy, a promise of what will happen when the Spirit fills you. You will want to go out and share this good news with the people immediately around you and the people further away and the people in the far ends of the earth. And that will happen as a result of the Spirit filling you. Yes, it will be an obedience to Christ's commission, but it will also be the natural product of the Spirit pushing us out into Christ's world with Christ's message. And so we are compelled by Christ's love and propelled by Christ's Spirit because we recognize that Christ's love is for all. As Paul writes, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, for all peoples in all places. Not just for us, not just for people like us, not just for people that we feel comfortable with in places that we feel comfortable going, but all people in all places, whether that's the, the furthermost places that seem most inaccessible, like North Korea or Laos or parts of Africa. Or whether that's places in Edinburgh where we feel most uncomfortable and people feel most unlike the nice people of Charlotte Chapel. All peoples in all places. A colleague of mine in Singapore used to say, there are no God-forsaken places, only church-forsaken places. And God has given to us, says Paul, the ministry of reconciliation and committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
What does it mean to have a ministry of reconciliation? I remember speaking to one of our field directors who had just come to Singapore for an annual consultation that we would have when we brought all our field directors in. And just before coming, he had spent two exhausting days exercising a ministry of reconciliation between two couples, two missionary couples, who were angry with each other and had been angry with each other for a long time. And I have to let you into a secret here that all our missionaries, even our RMF missionaries, are not perfect. And some of our most difficult problems are, are, are working alongside each other. And people who find it very difficult to work alongside each other and get angry and frustrated and bitter. And, and it just isn't working for them. And this reconciliation between these two couples didn't just happen. He had to persuade them to even meet together. They had to set time aside, in this case two full days. They had to set a place. He had to fly to where they were because it was far from where he was. And he spent two long days with them, listening, reflecting, persuading, imploring, appealing to them to forgive each other and to be reconciled with each other and to make a fresh start at working together in the Lord's work that both couples were called to. And praise God, they saw a breakthrough. We don't always, but in this case, he saw a breakthrough and there was real forgiveness and reconciliation. And when he came to Singapore, he was exhausted but relieved and praising God. And sometimes our ministry of reconciliation is like that between brothers and sisters who have fallen out. But the most important ministry of reconciliation is, as Paul writes in verse 18, from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What do we call somebody sent to another people to cross barriers with this message of reconciliation? Well, the traditional word is missionary. In today's world, missionary is not always a very positive word. Uh, in lots of parts of East Asia where we work, it's, it's not viewed very positively. And we sometimes look for other words. And somebody was saying to me the other day, perhaps we can call them intercultural workers. And I thought, hmm, nah, not too excited by that. The best alternative I've heard is envoy. The idea of somebody sent with a message. Because Paul says, we are Christ's ambassadors. That's what we are. We had a missionary in the Philippines. He wasn't new as a missionary. He'd been with RMF about 20, 25 years in Japan when he felt called to move from Japan and come to the Philippines. And he was very new in the Philippines. And he was Welsh. And he loved to sing, as the Welsh love to do. And one of the first things he did was join a choir in downtown Manila. And he turned up at this choir one day and he's very friendly, very outgoing, very effective evangelist. And he said to the guy next door, who are you? Um, I'm David Griffiths. Who are you? And he said, um, I'm Nicholas Platt. Well, 
to pretty much everybody else in the Philippines, we knew who Nicholas Platt was because he was the American ambassador. And relations with America were very important at that period in the Philippines. And he was on the news probably every couple of weeks. He had a very distinctive appearance, an eyebrow that sort of stuck up a bit. And if it was any of the rest of us, we'd have gone, oh, yes, and I'm probably not even dared to introduce ourselves. But he knew no better. So he said, oh, okay, I'm, I'm David Griffiths. Um, um, what do you do? Well, I'm the U.S. ambassador. Oh, really? I'm an ambassador too, you know. I don't know where the, where the conversation went after that, but he was an ambassador. And he was not afraid to say that he was an ambassador because he had been given this job to find an opportunity to tell people the message of reconciliation and then persuade, persuade appeal, urge them to accept it. These are all words that Paul uses. We don't just sort of bring the message and it's, take it or leave it. We work hard that people would understand it and receive it and change their lives because of it. And how do you persuade people? Well, you go where they are. You get to know them. You build trust with them and you share with them. And that's the basic process, whether that's in Edinburgh or whether that's at the far ends of the world that we need to work through as ministers of reconciliation, as ambassadors of Christ. But we have a problem. We have a problem in East Asia in that many of our countries in East Asia do not welcome people called missionaries. And all over East Asia, we have these signs. This is not actually a real sign, but it's a metaphorical representation of the signs that we have. Well, to be honest, it is a real sign, but the missionaries not welcome at the bottom is something I photoshopped onto it. But it's the reality. If you want to go to Japan, missionaries are welcome. You can go to Japan, you can evangelize, have Bible studies, plant churches, no problems. Likewise in the Philippines, Cambodia, Thailand, and a number of places. But in many of the countries of East Asia, and if you look at the map, you will see in green the countries that welcome people who are identified as missionaries. And in that brownie reddy color, the countries do, do not welcome missionaries. And so we have a problem as those who are sent with this message. And we need to stop and say, well, if missionaries are not welcome, who is welcome? And the answer is that all kinds of people are welcome. Tourists are welcome everywhere, including North Korea. So if you haven't planned your summer holidays yet, talk to your travel agent. <laughs> teachers are welcome, especially teachers of English. We are in a unique situation because all over the world there are millions and millions of people who want to learn English, even English with a Scottish accent, any kind of English, because that is the passport to progress in their situation. Business is welcome. Professionals of many kinds are welcome. Humanitarian assistance is much needed and often welcome. And actually, in some ways, having to stop and ask this question is really helpful to us. It stops us just rushing in with our agenda and makes us ask, 
What do they want? Who do they welcome? How can we serve them in ways that they really appreciate? How can we win their trust and their friendship and thus earn the right to speak into their situation with the good news of Jesus rather than just rush into their situation without perhaps taking those steps first? And this leads me back to my second question. How could anybody get to live in North Korea? When I ask different audiences which is the most closed country in East Asia, they nearly always get the answer right, North Korea. But they nearly always assume that North Korea is shut and there is nothing that we can do there. And just two weeks ago, I think we had our OMF national conference and I tried asking them there. And even our faithful OMF supporters, about half of them, were of the opinion that you couldn't get into North Korea. Well, Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission, which became the OMF, used to say, I have found there are three stages to every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then, it is difficult. Then, it is done. With respect to North Korea, we are past impossible. We are difficult. It's difficult, very difficult. But it is by no means impossible to get into North Korea. Of course, one way to get into North Korea is like these U.S. journalists to sneak into North Korea. And I've got a beautiful picture of a lake here. This is an interesting lake because the part near you is in China and the part on the other side is inside North Korea. And you can go up to the point at which we took this photo and you can see this beautiful lake and you can look across to North Korea. And a few years, an Englishman thought it would be interesting to walk all the way around the lake. It was some weeks before he came back. <laughs> he was treated much more nicely than the American journalist because uh, his intent was just innocent and foolish, whereas I think their intent was a bit more serious. But how can you get into North Korea in a way which allows you to live in North Korea, gives you some freedom to share with the people in North Korea? Well, one of the answers to that is business. Jane and the other two who received visas at that time got them because they had started a business in North Korea. And business's mission is becoming one of the key ways that we work in these countries that don't welcome people identified as, business, as, as missionaries. We call it missional business because we want to make sure that the, the mission imperative comes first and then we fashion the business to serve that. But business is welcome. Business is welcome because it, it contributes investment and jobs and expertise and economic development. Business is sometimes the best way to get into these situations and draw close to the people. I think of one example. Um, we had an American join us with a passion to reach Muslims in China. He was a linguist by training. He was the kind of guy that while he was learning Chinese, he wrote a book about how you learn Chinese. Most of us just struggle to learn the language. Um, to write a book about it that others are still using years later was quite exceptional. After he'd learned Chinese, he then taught English. Because English is this terrific opportunity. 
And the relationship of a teacher and their students in most of our Asian contexts is a very positive one. Asians respect their teachers in a way that's perhaps not true always in Britain. Um, Asians relate to their teachers. And, and it's a context in which you have respect as a teacher, but an opportunity to share your life and your convictions and to share Christ. And he did that for a while, but teaching English was not what God had made him to be. And to be honest, he hated it. Now, we've got lots of people, particularly in places like China, who love teaching English and see such great opportunities they would be happy to continue doing it. But it was not for him. So he set up a representative office for a Chinese businessman that he'd met on a train that nobody but God had planned. And he moved up into the capital city of the area where these Muslims were and for several years operated this representative office. But it got him physically close to these Muslims. But it didn't actually get him into a relationship with them because he found that the people that he related to through this business were mainly Han Chinese and not the Muslim Chinese. And to seek out opportunities with the Muslim Chinese didn't come naturally. Well, that raised red flags. That worried the Chinese. That was not very helpful. So he went into walnut farming. I don't know why OMF leaders didn't see that when this American linguist first joined. We're just not, we're just not very fast. But he realized that in this whole area in the south of that province, they grew a lot of walnuts, and all the walnut farmers were Uyghurs. And if he became a walnut farmer alongside them, he had opportunities to relate to them that were far superior than what he had running a business in the city. After a few years, he moved out of walnut farming and, and set up a small walnut oil processing business so that rather than just competing with a few other farmers, he actually served the farmers in a wide area, traveling around, buying their walnuts, processing their oil, sending it off, I think, to the UK to sell here. And that gave him contact throughout the area. I traveled around with him one day, and he was just a remarkable personal evangelist. And I would just sit there trying to follow what was going on as he sat under a walnut tree and gossiped the gospel with Uyghur walnut farmers. And there were things happening also in that walnut oil processing factory that had got nothing to do with walnut oil. It became a safe place for discipleship of new believers who were making their first tentative steps to Christ out of their communities. And so we see in some places the best opportunity is business. And, and sometimes when we think about business, people get a bit worried. Is business an evil thing? You know, money is the root of all evil. Well, not if you read your Bible carefully. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Slightly different than simply money. And it's not just business for money or business for visas, but business for the glory of God to gain access to the people to build relationships with them, to demonstrate Christian values, to contribute to the community, and through that find opportunities to share Christ with them, to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's the process that we have to walk through in these creative access countries to get into the country in the first place, 
to get alongside the people in a way in which we can relate effectively to them, to build trust through serving them, and then to share Christ with them, persuading them by our lives as well as by our words. But this is the good news of reconciliation with God that you need to hear and you need to respond to. And that is happening in these places. Amongst that Muslim people in China, there are now several hundred believers in Christ. That's still very small compared to the total size of that people group. But it's growing. God is doing something. In North Korea, we're at a much earlier stage of winning that welcome for Christians. Of, of, of winning that trust. Of earning that opportunity. And longing that they would come to know Christ too. But what about you? Paul writes here in verse 15, And he, that is Christ, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's us. Us who live, who have received new life in Christ, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I met a man a few weeks ago and he said, this is my life verse. This is what God gave me as a young person to live by. This is what's been going around in my head ever since, that Christ died for all and those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. How then would, should we live? Do you have skills that God could use? Qualifications that would open doors into some of these places where missionaries are not welcome, but professionals are, where teachers are, where people in business are. It might be crazy from a worldly point of view, from the point of view of your career, in the midst of a recession, to step out of that into something completely different. The kind of career moves we have in China are not going up the ladder. They're going down the ladder or off the ladder altogether. But it might be God's will. It might make sense as the way by which unreached people will hear the message of reconciliation. As Paul says, if making these moves is in our right minds, it is for you, it is for them, it is for the glory of God. Perhaps there are church members that God could use. Perhaps as elders, there are people in your pastoral groups that you should be going to and saying, maybe, maybe you should be doing something different as the next career step. Maybe it's as elders yourselves that you should be doing something different. I don't know what God is saying. Maybe it's sons and daughters that God could use. And it's interesting, as people join OMF, those that are coming long-term come to Singapore, and um, over the last 14 years that we've been there, Amri and I have interviewed probably 800 people joining OMF. And one of the themes that has come out from time to time with different people is, I wanted to do this, but my parents weren't keen. And sometimes those parents who weren't keen were committed Christians, committed to mission, 
but really struggled when it was their son or daughter that God was calling into mission. And suddenly that call got much more personal than they had expected and much more harder to answer enthusiastically from their point of view. Now is the time. Paul says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time in a real sense in today's world. There are no closed countries. We went through a period between about 1950 and 1980 when many of the countries of East Asia were closed. We didn't know what was happening in China. We could not go into North Korea. Actually, I met a man a couple of weeks ago who said, actually, I visited North Korea a couple of times in the 70s. I said, really? Yes, I was with the Polish secret police. <laughs> well, that's not an opportunity available to most of us. <laughs> but today you don't have to be with the Polish secret police. Whether it's North Korea or Laos or Vietnam or Indonesia or these different places, they are not closed. They just require some creativity. But the biggest difficulty we have found is not finding ways to go in, but finding the people who are ready to go in. Somebody wrote about China. It's ironic. A hundred years ago, foreigners were not welcome, and missionaries were having to push their way in in one way or another. Today, foreigners in China are welcome in many, many different ways. And we can't find enough people to go in. In North Korea, just last October, a new university was opened called Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. It's a university that has been set up by evangelical Christians. And the North Koreans know that. And they welcome that. But they can't find enough people to be confident of being able to fully staff it. They want to staff it with committed Christians, what we might call missionaries, but we won't call missionaries when they're in North Korea, out of respect for the North Koreans who've welcomed us there. The hardest thing is not finding the ways to get it, but finding the people to go in. Now is the time. Now, you may or may not be called overseas, and that's not a judgment I can make. That's between you and the Lord. But now is the time to surrender completely to Him, to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us, as we figure out what God is asking us to do as His envoys sent with His message of reconciliation into His world. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in the words of Jane, you have rescued us from the pit and you've given us new life in Christ and you've made us partners in your work and you've commissioned us as your ambassadors and you've given us this message about Jesus, about how people can come and be put right with yourself and know you as Father. And we want to live for that. And we know for each of us what it means to live for that is something quite different. And sometimes it's something quite scary. But we pray for the courage of your spirit 
and the filling of your love that we might be ready to do whatever it is that you're asking us to do. That in this city and around this country and throughout your world, we might live out what it means to know Jesus and speak out what it means for others to come and find Jesus, that he might be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen.